Our scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 31, verses 1 through 7. 1 Samuel 31, verses 1 through 7. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malachi Sua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men, on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. And Lord, now as we turn our hearts to your word, I pray in the mighty and matchless and merciful name of Jesus that you would powerfully use it in our lives today. I pray that you would set before us the way of faith and the way of flesh, and I pray that you would inspire us by the Holy Spirit to choose the way of faith. Oh, Father, I pray for anyone right now who is marching toward their own destruction. I pray that this word would turn them back by the grace of your heart. And I pray for those who are strong in their faith today, and I pray that the message today would be like wind in their sails, that it would be like fuel on their fire, that they would have joy and resolve to walk in the way of faith, to trust in the Lord their God, to hope in you, and to hope in your words, and to hope in your faithfulness. Oh, Father, please come now by your Holy Spirit and use your word mightily in our lives. We trust you for this, and we give you our thanks in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I was looking at 1 Samuel yesterday because we're coming, bringing 1 Samuel to an end this morning, although we are going to continue through and finish out 2 Samuel over the summer and into the fall. But as I was looking over the book of 1 Samuel yesterday, I noticed that uh, roughly a little bit over half of it is devoted to the story of David and Saul and to comparing and contrasting the two. It's devoted to comparing and contrasting the man of faith and the man of flesh. The man who put his trust in God and submitted his life to God, and the man who used the name of God but probably never actually knew God. The second half of 1 Samuel is dedicated to comparing and contrasting David who was called and anointed to be the king and yet had not quite yet risen to the actual position of king. And Saul, on the other hand, who was called and anointed to be king, but who had been rejected by God because he had previously rejected God. And as the author has moved his argument along, we have seen how the man of faith sought to bless and to show compassion toward the man of flesh, haven't we? We've seen how David sought to reach out and show extraordinary kindness to Saul. 
And we've seen how the man of flesh has sought to undermine and to dismiss and demean and even try to kill the man of faith. And by the way, I think that this is the fundamental relationship in the world between people of faith and people of the flesh. The details differ from person to person and place to place and time to time, but the fundamental uh, conflict is just the same. The, the people of faith seek to bless the people of flesh, and the people of flesh always hate the people of faith. Their hatred takes various forms. Some of them are more subtle. Some of them are more open and brash. Some of them, like I'm thinking of some places in India that I've been praying for lately, there's just open persecution and physical abuse and even killing of Christian people. But whatever the details, the fundamental story of humanity is just the same. It is the war between faith and flesh. It goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, doesn't it? The issue between those two brothers early, early on in human history was faith and flesh, and flesh could not stand faith, so it it killed it. And so in the story of David and Saul, beloved, we see not only their story, but we see our own story. In this general context, the author's more specific aim in the last several chapters of 1 Samuel is to compare and contrast David and Saul with regard to a particular question. And that question is, what happens to a man of faith when he gets himself into a bind of his own making? What happens to him? What becomes of him? And what happens to a man of the flesh when he gets himself into a bind of his own making? How does God respond to him and what becomes of him? As I showed you a few weeks ago, the author of 1 Samuel at this point has such a desire in his heart to compare and contrast David in this way that he has set aside to some extent telling his story in a chronological fashion. He's actually moved around some of the time details so that he can go back and forth from David to Saul and from David to Saul, which he does two times. The first pass he makes, he shows us David's dilemma and then he shows us Saul's dilemma. And then he comes back to David and he shows us the resolution to David's story and today we will see the resolution to Saul's story. As for David, you'll remember that in response to the deep soul exhaustion of running away from Saul and and running for his life day after day and week after week and month after month and indeed year after year, he got weary and he made some very bad decisions and he got himself into some very unfortunate situations. And without going into the details with you again, let me simply say that in the end, the Lord worked everything together for David's good. As I said a few weeks ago, in the end, not even David could be against David because the Lord was for him. It's not that the Lord took David's sin lightly or that there was no price to pay. The Lord took David's sin very seriously and he did indeed pay a price, as did his 600 men and all of their families. But this is to say that in the end, when a man of faith looks to God and trusts in God and hopes in God, God will overcome their sin and work even the evil that they have done for them. In David's case, I believe that God looked forward to the cross of Christ and on the basis of that once for all sacrifice forgave all of David's fleshly decisions and caused the consequences of what he had done to work out for the glory of his name and for the good of his son, David. Such is the destiny of people of faith, beloved. 
because God is for them, not even they can be against themselves. What incredible good news. As for Saul, although the Lord had clearly instructed him and more than adequately supported him in his duties as king, he decided to reject the words and will and ways of God, even though he used those things to manipulate religious language and religious people. In his heart, he had rejected the ways of God in favor of his own wisdom and ways, if you can call Saul's wisdom, wisdom. And because the Lord rejected the, the, Saul had rejected the Lord, the Lord rejected him from being king, and he decreed that Saul's kingdom would be snatched from him and given to one who was his neighbor, as the Bible puts it. And even when Saul sought far too late in his life to repent and turn everything around. All the Lord did was use Samuel. He brought Samuel back from the dead, as it were, and he used Samuel essentially to say to Saul, Saul, I have spoken and I will not change my mind. You have rejected me, I have rejected you, I have pronounced a judgment against you, and I will be faithful to my judgment. Please keep your finger in chapter 31 and just flip back with me to chapter 28. Verses 17 through 19. I want to remind you of the specific words spoken against Saul. Samuel said, The Lord has done to you, Saul, as he spoke by me in chapter 15, verse 28. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, the man of faith. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath, against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you today. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. You and your sons shall die. Within 24 hours you shall die. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Beloved, I do not know precisely where is the point of no return with God. But one thing I learned from Saul's story and a few other stories in the scripture is that there is in this life, before death, a place where a person can get where once they cross a certain line, there is no longer any hope for them. There is for that person no hope of salvation in this life. Now that case might be rare, but Saul shows us that it's possible. He actually crossed that line. He actually found the place of no return. God had pronounced a judgment upon him and he would have no way of escape. The Lord is faithful and therefore he was going to uh, complete all of the judgments that he had spoken against Saul. He would not change his mind. I pray today, beloved, that as we ponder the end of the story, the resolution to what happened to Saul, I pray that we would learn more about the Bible and the things that the Lord is trying to reveal to us through the story of Scripture. I do pray that we would learn more about the people of old. But more than that, I pray that we would understand that the Word of God is a living Word and that it's here to diagnose our hearts. It's here to woo us in one way and warn us away from another way. 
the Spirit of God is here in this room today to use the word that he revealed to inspire the people that he has called. And I pray that we would put our hearts out before the Lord right now and let ourselves be vulnerable before him. Let him speak into our lives. Let him speak into our hearts and let him persuade us to move into the way of faith rather than in the way of flesh. May the Lord give us ears to hear and hearts to receive. I've been praying all morning that my own heart would be like that that good soil, that healthy soil, that eager soil that just wants to receive the seed of the word of God so that it sprouts and grows. The author has already told us in going back and forth and back and forth that the Philistines had come out to make war against Israel. And as it turns out, things were not going well for Israel. What the Philistines were up to is they were trying to capture two major trade, trade routes in the north of the country. Whoever controlled those train route, uh, trade routes had power and they had prestige and they had lots of possessions. And so this was not a new battle for the Philistines. They were constantly trying to capture that area, but Israel had it in their grasp. But now things were not going so well. Things were not looking hopeful for Israel. Indeed, when we get to chapter 31, will you just notice with me how the author wastes no time? He just gets straight to the point and tells us what is the status of the battle. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. He's bringing us back to the train of thought. And the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And they're being slaughtered. Now Mount Gilboa is the place where Israel was encamped. So the picture is that Israel had camped in a certain place, then they went way out to the front lines, but they're being beat back and beat back and beat back and beat back all the way to the place where their camp was. That's the picture. They're really getting trounced. And as the Philistines are beating them back, they're killing them one after another all along the way until they filled Mount Gilboa with the slain. As they did that, as the battle raged, they eventually came to the place where Saul and his sons were located. And the author, again, he just wastes no time. He just tells us what happened. That precious man Jonathan, the son of Saul, died, and his brothers Abinadab and Malkishua died along with them. This was a most significant blow, beloved. The sons of the king were some of the most powerful people in a kingdom, and now they were dead. At least the brothers that were there on that mountain that day were dead. And so the Philistines, emboldened by that, kept pressing on, and they kept pressing on, and eventually they saw Saul. They spotted him. They found him. And the archers of the Philistines drew back their bows, and with all their skill and with all their might, they began to shoot and shoot and shoot, and the scripture just says that they wounded Saul badly. As I've pondered this story carefully, I, I don't think that Saul was exactly mortally wounded right at this point, but I think that he was wounded badly enough that he knew he had no chance of escape and that they were going to come to him and kill him. He was probably not going to die from the particular wound that he had, but he was going to die because he was incapacitated. So he looks to his armor bearer and he says, I command you now, take out your sword and thrust it through me. Kill me now so that these uncircumcised Philistines don't come and thrust me through and then do with me whatever they want. I think the ESV translates it that they might not mistreat me. So I hope you can see that Saul, first of all, does not want to die at the hand of the Philistines. He does not want to die at the hand of foreigners. But more than that, he's trying to avoid torture. And I can't blame him for either thing. But like David, 
Saul's armor bearer refused to kill the king because, the Bible says, he feared greatly. I think that he feared for his own life if he carried out this act. He feared for the lives of his family if he did so. But probably even deeper, like David, he had a sense of worship in his heart toward God and he was not going to strike the Lord's anointed. Probably Saul's armor bearer knew the stories of David who refused to kill Saul. And now he himself said, if David wouldn't do it, why in the world would I do it? I'm sorry, my king, but I cannot kill you. Saul raised no objection. I think he assessed the situation. He knew he did not have time to get into an argument, so he drew his own sword and he fell upon it. Essentially, he committed suicide. And right there in the front of his armor bearer, Saul fell and Saul died. The king of Israel was now dead on Mount Gilboa. The armor bearer looked at this and could quickly see what his end was gonna be. And so he took out his own sword and he fell upon it as did his master and he died at his master's side. If you look with me now at verse six, this brings us to one of the most important verses probably in this chapter, the most important verse. This verse is simple and it's short, but it brings to a culmination what the author has been drawing out from chapter 15 to this point. The author just says, thus, in this way, Saul died and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men, that is to say his fighting men, on the same day together. This brings back Samuel's words to my mind. Saul, the Lord will give you also into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow your son shall be with me. Your sons shall die. You shall die. Within 24 hours you all shall die. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hands of the Philistines. Beloved, this was God's specific word of judgment against Saul. And I think the most important thing for us to see today is that God was faithful to his word. He was perfectly faithful to his word. May our souls hear and understand and even tremble that when God speaks, his speech matters. Not one person in this room will be able to look God in the face and say, I never knew you said that. All of you have Bibles. All of you, I presume, have the ability to read. And if you don't, you have the ability to listen. There is an abundant resource of biblical material in our land. Nobody will have an excuse before the Lord to say, I didn't know you said that. You should know what the Lord has said, beloved. And I promise you that what he has said in his word matters. And he will judge, not by what we think on the day of judgment, but he will judge by what he has revealed in his word and nobody will escape. Nobody will escape. God is tremendously gracious. He is overflowing with mercy and steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the heart of our Father. But when he renders a word of judgment, he means it. And those who sit under that word will not escape. Oh, how I pray. Oh, how I pray that our souls will stand up and understand that God means what he says. Some of the men who were there that day fled from Mount Gilboa. They ran across the valley and they were on the other side. And I doubt that they could see the details of exactly who was dying. But they could definitely see that Israel was being slaughtered and so they just ran as fast as they could. And everywhere they went, they told people what had happened and this caused the hearts of the people to melt. 
so that the people of Israel in the north actually just abandoned their cities. They just walked away and let the Philistines come in and take everything. And the way the Hebrew reads means that they didn't even pack their stuff. Just like the Exodus where they had to get up and get out, they did the same thing here. But now they did it in fear because their hearts were were melting before their enemies. Beloved, they were supposed to conquer. But here they're passively, very passively now being conquered. We learned from the book of Joshua several years ago that Israel was supposed to conquer the entirety of the promised land by faith in God and for the glory of God, but now they were being conquered. Joshua had taught his generation, who taught the next generation, who taught the next generation, who taught the next generation, who taught Saul's generation, that if they would cling to the Lord, they would conquer. If they would compromise, they would be conquered. Cling to the Lord and conquer, compromise and be conquered. Cling to the Lord and you will have power before your enemies. Compromise and you will melt before your enemies. Cling to the Lord and you will have the confidence of the Lord in you. Compromise and you will be filled with fleshly confusions. Cling to the Lord and you will have hope for the future. Compromise and you will destroy your future. The word of the Lord had been so clear to these people, beloved. They might stand before God and say, we didn't know, but they should have known. They should have known. It was their fault that they did not know. And now they were laying slain. They were just passively abandoning their cities to the people they were supposed to have conquered because they were following the man of flesh. So is the end of Saul. So is his destiny. And I pray that our hearts will hear. I pray that our hearts will receive as I have pondered the Lord's words through Joshua and then directly to Saul, I've, I've remembered a lesson that I've learned many times but that has been so important to me in this last week or so. And I've already said it, but I want to say it again. The Lord is faithful and therefore his judgments are inescapable. And we've talked a lot about the faithfulness of God at this church over the years. And primarily we've focused on the positive side we focused on the fact that when God proclaims a purpose or makes a promise, he is going to be faithful to the details of what he said. And hallelujah, that is true. God will do everything he says he's going to do. But we maybe have not quite focused so much on the negative side, and we should if we're going to take the Bible seriously, that when God pronounces a judgment, he will be faithful to that as well. The Lord is faithful, beloved, and therefore his words of blessing and his words of judgment are inescapable. And I say to you again that I pray our souls will wake up and realize how serious and how powerful and how irreversible and how inescapable is the word of God. I think that the primary motivation we ought to have in our hearts to read the Bible is because we're children delighting in the hearts of our Father. I don't think our Father likes to scare and use guilt tactics, etc., to get us to read his word. But our father's a truth teller. I remember times when my dad threatened punishment on me and I was not taking it seriously and he knew I wasn't and he looked me right in the eyes and said, Charlie, I mean what I said. You better pay attention to what I said. This is a little bit of a moment like that for us, beloved. Our father loves us. But he commands that we take his word seriously, and nobody is responsible to do that for us but us. And so I pray 
With all my heart, I pray that we will see the power of the words of God today and take the words of our Father seriously, that we would take the heart of our Father expressed in his words seriously. Now, Saul's suicidal action did spare him from the suffering of torture, but it did not suffer, uh, spare him from public dishonor. In the days after things, uh, these things took place, in fact, the Bible says the very next day after this battle took place, the Philistines came back upon that mountain and they went to plunder the dead for all of the stuff that they had on their persons. And while they were doing so, they came across Saul and they came across his sons. I don't think they had to even think about this at all. They immediately took Saul's body, they cut off his head, they stripped him of his armor, and they sent him in two different directions. They took Saul's armor, and they sent that back to their own home country, to Philistia, which was a several days' journey away. And they told the messengers specifically to go and proclaim the good news. They went there to tell the people that Saul had been killed and that Israel had been defeated, and they were to take that armor into the temple of their main false god so that their people would be inspired in their false worship. The people of Philistia were celebrating over what their god, they thought, had done. Then they took Saul's body and they sent it in another direction. They sent it more to the north and more to the east to a crossroads, to a town called Bethshan. This, this town sat right at the corner of a major trade route that went north and south and another one that went east and west. So peoples from all over the world went along these two trade routes and many people therefore would have seen the body of Saul pinned against the wall of Bethshan. The Philistines were trying to boast in what they had done and they were trying to inspire fear in the hearts of their enemies and I suppose even of their allies. The ironic thing here is though, that while they were celebrating their supposed victory over Yahweh and his people, do you know what was really happening? Of course, reading the Bible, you know what was really happening. Yahweh was using the Philistines as tools in his hand to execute his judgment against Saul. He was in total control. They were celebrating because they thought they won against Israel and their God won against Israel's God. This was not the case, beloved. This was not the case. God was using the Philistines to execute his judgments. He was in absolute control. From a fleshly point of view, it probably seemed like the Philistines were winning and that they were doing the right thing, that they were striking fear into the hearts of their enemies. But not long after they had pinned Saul's body to the wall, the Israelite people of Jabesh Gilead, who lived on the east side of the Jordan, and yet were Israelites. They heard about Saul's body being there, and their valiant men rose up, and at night they took an 11-mile journey to Bethshan, and they rescued the bodies of Saul and of his sons, and they brought them back to their city where they burned them and buried them and tried to restore as much honor as they possibly could. Now, I don't know if you remember the name Jabesh Gilead, but that's a very important city. That's the city at the end of the book of Judges where all kinds of crazy things ended up happening and where there was this very tenuous relationship between the tribe of Benjamin and the people of that city. And when Saul of the tribe of Benjamin rose to power as king, surely everybody wondered what he would do with regard to this little city. Would he execute revenge upon them or, or what would he do? But what he did early in his reign, in fact, the first thing that he ever did as king was by the Spirit of God and by the grace of God, he went and rescued the people of Jabesh Gilead from the hands of a dastardly king named Nahash. He did an amazing thing. And now the people of Jabesh Gilead 
were returning the grace to Saul and to his family that they had received from Saul and from his family. They risked his life to declare the grace of God. That's what's happening. And then the Bible says that they fasted and they wept for seven days before the Lord. I think they humbled themselves before God. I think they mourned the life of their king. And I think in those seven days during that week, they wondered what in the world would become of their nation. They wondered what in the world even would become of their God. And with that, the book of 1 Samuel comes to an end. Although, properly speaking, the book is not coming to an end. It's only the the ancient scroll that's coming to an end. And what I mean by that is this. In the old days, the way that they wrote the Bible was they took and wrote it on parchments, and then I'm sure you've seen the pictures. They rolled the parchments up on things that look like rolling pins. Have you seen that? They had one on each side, and you would just read it by rolling it like this. It was actually kind of hard and awkward to do. I had a chance when I was in seminary to try one of those things out, and it, it, there's some skill in, involved in it. But the issue is that the scrolls could only be so long. They could not get any longer than 40 feet, or it was just completely unmanageable. And so the reason we have a First Samuel and a Second Samuel, First Kings, Second Kings, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, is not because the story is divided. It's because the scroll had to be divided. So the, the first Samuel is coming to an end, but the story's not coming to an end. Having said that, though, if this story was a play, the playwright would have chosen to put intermission right here. I promise you that. The playwright would have wanted the people to break and go out into the hallways right at this point and ponder what they had just heard. He would want them or she would want them to ponder the difference between the man of faith and the man of flesh. The playwright would want the people to ponder what will become now of David? What will become now of Israel? What will become of their God? I promise you, beloved, that the author of 1 Samuel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, deliberately broke the story here so that we would pause and ponder. And I want to really encourage you this week to envision this next week as the intermission of the story. And the next Sunday, we will pick up that story. But during the intermission, ponder what we have seen. Ponder what we have heard. Ponder the way of faith. Ponder the way of flesh. Ponder the difference between the two. Ponder the end of David. Ponder the end of Saul. And see what the Lord might say to you. And keep Psalm 1, 5 through 6 in mind. It occurred to me this week, when I saw that that was the memory verse for this week, I was just blown away. Because when I read those words again, I thought to myself, this was no theory to David. David had seen this in his actual life. He had seen this in the life of his predecessor and of everybody who was around him. David knew that these words were true. David wrote, the wicked are not so. They are not like the righteous. But they are like the chaff. No matter how strong they seem, they are like the chaff that the wind just simply drives away. And therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked simply will not stand against the words of God that have been decreed. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. David spoke that, beloved, from deep, profound experience, and those words are true. I pray that we would ponder them. For David... This truth was far from theoretical because he had seen it all. But in his own life, in his own life, he had seen quite the opposite. He had seen the irreversible blessing of God upon him because the Lord is faithful to him. 
As I said, we've been pondering the difference between faith and flesh, and I think the main thing to see today is that when a person genuinely puts their faith in God, the blessing of God upon them is inescapable. In that person's life, not even their own actions will ultimately work against them because God is for them. But for the person who rejects the will and ways of God, for the person who thumbs their nose at God and thinks they have no need of God, even if on the outside they seem religious and they know how to use the name of God and the the things of God, the activities of the people of God to put on a show, God is not impressed with such a show. If in their heart they have rejected God, beloved, eventually the day will come when God pronounces an irreversible judgment and they will not escape. Beloved, the Lord is faithful to his word of blessing. He is faithful to his word of judgment. And there's no way of escaping either one. Now as I've thought about how these things relate to us, I think that the Lord has brought this story to our attention for at least two reasons. He's preserved this over so many centuries for at least two reasons. First, his desire is that we would clearly see the contrast between the life of faith and the life of flesh in such a way that we would choose faith over flesh. He's not just telling a story. He's trying to guide our lives, and I hope that we can see that. The Bible says that he is our shepherd and we are his sheep, and he longs to guide his sheep into the pastures where they can eat and be full, where they can truly live. And so I pray, beloved, that we will allow our Father to shepherd us in the way that we should go, and I pray that we would choose the way of faith today. For us, to live a life of faith simply means to put all of our faith in Jesus Christ, because the Lord sent him alone into the world so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And the Lord is so serious about this that he said in John six twenty nine that our only work in this life is to believe in Jesus. Elsewhere, he said that all we're to eat is Jesus. All we're to drink is Jesus. All we're to abide in is Jesus. All we're to rest in is Jesus. And every single one of those verbs that I just mentioned Every single one of them is written in such a way as to imply ongoing action and not just a decision that's made in a moment of time. In other words, there's a way of life that's being spelled out here. And it's saying if you want the destiny of David, if you want the destiny of those who live by faith, then believe in Christ and keep on believing. Eat of Christ and keep on eating. Drink of Christ and keep on drinking. Abide in Christ and keep on abiding. Rest in Christ and keep on resting. Feast your souls in Christ and keep on feasting. Keep on feasting. Keep on feasting. For those who feast on Christ by faith, beloved, the future is so incredibly hopeful. It is so bright. Indeed, the blessing of the Lord upon us is so inevitable that we can't even stand against ourselves. And surely, surely our Father wants us to choose that way today. And so, beloved, I urge you to choose the way of faith and live. Truly choose the way of faith. I know many of you have already believed in Christ. I know that. But I'm saying continue to believe in Christ. Don't let your faith grow stale. Don't let the world distract you. Don't let your faith, your, your flesh distract you. Keep looking, keep believing, keep eating, keep drinking, keep resting, keep abiding, keep pursuing, keep in Christ, beloved, and you will live. The second thing I think the Lord would have us learn from this story has less to do with us as individuals and more to do with the grand purposes of God in the world. And if I can just state the point simply, in a way this story is the tale of two men and of their kingdoms, 
But it's also the tale of two kingdoms that stand as metaphors for kingdoms that are much, much greater than themselves. I remember telling you months and months ago that I've always been confused as to why God had to do it in this way. Why did he raise up Saul and then David? Why not just go straight to David? And over this time in 1 Samuel, I've seen clearly that the reason is God has given them to us as metaphors for the kingdoms of flesh and the kingdom of faith. David's kingdom stands for the kingdom of Christ, and Saul's kingdom stands for all kingdoms of flesh. The great, great war that is happening in the world today. These are metaphors for a greater fight. And here's the thing that I saw this week that just so delighted my heart, especially in light of the political chaos that's in our land right now. Can you even believe the political situation in the U.S. right now? The other day, I, I, just, I, just, I felt like somebody must be about ready to wake me up at some point. I can't believe this is real right now. In the midst of such chaos, it was so delightful to my soul to see that if David's kingdom, as flawed as David was, was inevitable to rise, then how much more is Christ's kingdom, who is led by a flawless king, destined to rise? It's going to happen, beloved. Just as David rose, despite all odds, Christ will rise and all of his enemies will be put underneath his feet. One day, we will look and see it with our eyes, not just by faith, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And we will see the day when all nations bow before him and acknowledge him as the Lord and King to the glory of the Father. That's going to happen. And if Saul's kingdom, as powerful as he seemed, as immovable as he seemed, crumbled in just a second, just like that, how much more will Satan's kingdom crumble just like that? The Lord said, there's, I wish I could remember the place right off the top of my head, but this is one of those, it's in the Bible somewhere kind of moments. But I promise you, it is in the Bible somewhere where the Lord says, we'll look and we'll be in shock. In a day, his kingdom will fall. In a day, the powerful kingdoms of the earth that seem immovable will fall and it will be over. Read the end of Revelation. Babylon the Great is going down. They are going down. And when they do, Christ will rise up and Christ will reign forever and ever and ever. Beloved, this is the story that's supposed to point us to a greater story that is our reality, that is our destiny. Isn't that exciting? I pray that God would really help us, especially in light of the tumult in our land, that he would help us to put our hope in the kingdom of Christ and the one king who needs no election process or whatever, he's already been crowned and he will reign forever and ever. May we put the depth of our emotional hope in that kingdom and in that kingdom alone. And may we rejoice that Jesus is destined to rise and rule and reign forever and ever. May we choose the way of faith and reject the way of flesh. Let's pray now that the Lord will help us with these things. Father, I thank you so much for giving us 1 Samuel. I thank you for teaching us things that happened in other days so that we might be instructed about our own days. I thank you, Father, for caring enough for us that you would so blatantly demonstrate to us what the way of faith looks like and what the way of flesh looks like. And I thank you that by your Spirit, You would have us choose the way of faith over the way of flesh. And I pray that you would come now and help us with that, Lord. I know that in my own heart, I desire to make that right choice. But I also see so many weaknesses in my own heart, Father. And I know that as soon as I say amen, there'll be temptations aplenty to distract me. Things that might even seem good, but that draw me away from you. So, Father, I just ask for your help. 
Please help my soul to delight in you. Help my soul to take your word seriously. Help my soul to believe in what you have said and to submit myself to what you have said. And I pray this for every single one of us, Father. May our souls wake up and understand how serious and also how life-giving is the word of God. May our souls rejoice in the power of our risen king that will rise to power in such a way that it will never be overturned. And oh God, may we choose the way of faith. Please minister to us now, Father, one by one, as we rise to sing your praise.